Welcome to the second half of the first season of the Say No, K-N-O-W.org podcast. This is the place where we have been discussing everything drug-related from policy, crime, research. We talk about what's going on on the streets. We talk about what's going on in the universities and the research areas. And uh, we talk to people with lived experience and we discuss ideas on how we can make things just a bit better. We receive funding for this podcast from the Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse. You can check out the great work that they are doing at chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed in our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members. And the views also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization that I'm associated with. And the same goes for our guests. A big shout out to DJ Charlie Hustle. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for providing the excellent music that you've been hearing both on the intro and outro of our podcasts. Everybody that's listening right now, please hit the subscribe button. It helps. Also go to our Facebook page, engage with us there. If you've got questions, comments, uh, concerns, you've got new ideas, anything, head, to the, head, head onto social media, send us a tweet, um, challenge us. Uh, we're all in this together. We're all trying to make this world just a little bit better, trying to find some solutions at work. So I hope you enjoy the second half of the season. I sure enjoyed making it. Thanks for tuning in to another Say No, K-N-O-W.org podcast. Today I have a very special guest. My former chief, Clive Wayhill, is joining me. Clive, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Matt. Well, it's going to be great. I've... Uh, Getting an opportunity to sit down with a with my former police chief is something that, you know, you don't get to do too often. So, um, so I'm really looking forward to asking you some questions. You know, and it's great. You know, I've had kind of a year to reflect on my whole career. So, uh, hopefully, I'll have a, a few things that people might be interested in. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about about that. Um, what's it like transitioning um, from? you know, police chief and essentially being the country's police chief when you're the head of the uh, Canadian um, Police Chiefs Association to now civilian life. What's that like? You know, it's been a a funny transition because as I moved away from being the chief, uh, you know, new people are moving in. The organization is being run by different people. So, you know, I've kind of just shied away even from looking at a lot of things that are happening in policing. I just, I guess maybe that's a coping mechanism just to move (laughs) away from it and get on with my new chapter. Right. And so what are you spending your time doing now? Well, I was very fortunate uh, for the last six months that the province of Saskatchewan hired me to uh, do a complete review of the coroner system here in Saskatchewan. So uh, that led me to go to British Columbia and Alberta and Ontario and Manitoba and Nova Scotia and see how they run their medical examiner system or their coroner systems and uh, make some recommendations to the government on how we should be running things here. So you're using some of your policing skills in that area, I imagine? Absolutely. And you know, it's funny, you know, you deal with coroners through our police career naturally, but right. you don't really know how, how the system works and what their policies are until you really dig down and find it. So it was a growing experience for me. Right. Um, so looking back on your, your career, Clive, what would be what would be some, some key highlights that, that stick out in your mind when you do kind of that reflection? You know, I always worked uh, on the inner cities uh, when I worked in Regina, specifically when I was, you know, a patrol constable. And, uh, you know, I walked a beat in the inner city and I took a real interest in it. And, you know, I could see at a very young age that, uh, you know, people that were living in poverty and poor housing and suffering from racism and, uh, you know, a disadvantage was really causing some issues for them. 
Right. Uh, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of hope. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that we've had such a, a high crime rate here right across the Prairie Provinces, whether it be Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, or the north. Uh, it's an unfortunate situation that we have here in Canada with the, you know, the uh, the poor conditions that a lot of our Indigenous people are, are, are suffering right now. Right. So what, what would be some of those... Um kind of key factors do you think that would contribute to a community's crime rate? Well, certainly that is one in, in our area of the country. Uh, and, you know, we have to be very careful when we're looking at crime rates too because uh, we have what's called uniform crime reporting with Stats Canada. So that means that every police service has to try to collate their stats in the same way. But as we've seen things happen in recent years, uh, like for instance, there's one city now that uh, if you have graffiti, uh, they don't, the police won't take the report anymore. It goes to okay. one of the city departments. So therefore, they're not capturing that statistic anymore as a as a as a uh, mischief. So it looks so like their graffiti issue disappeared. Right. It looks like they have no <laughs> no problem. Right. And there's another city in in Canada that uh, for a minor assault they just go under a bylaw. Uh, they don't go under the criminal code for an assault. So once again, it looks like there's no. So that's one of the reasons that we're seeing crime rates look like they're going down. Okay. When in reality, we may be making some headway but they're not dropping as much as people think they are because the police are doing things differently. Oh, and I as see. they do things differently, we're not capturing the statistics in the same way we did in the past. Ergo, it's looking like we have a better situation when sometimes that's not the case. Right. So kind of as a police service starts approving efficiencies in certain areas, then that's where we can sort of see those the misrepresentation of statistics. Absolutely. And, up. you know, uh, you know Saskatoon, well, the, the uh, crime stats just came out uh, yesterday, and unfortunately Saskatoon is number one for the crime severity index. But right. Saskatoon is a great city to live in. I mean, yeah. uh, I just got back from Vancouver. I was visiting my daughter there, and uh, we went down to uh, East Hastings to see what was going on. Down. I mean, we have nothing like that in Saskatoon. We don't right. have those issues here in Saskatoon. Most of our crime is petty crime, property crime, uh, and it's crime unfortunately, that are perpetrated against people that are li in the drug trade. Right. And they're the ones that are doing the violent crimes against each other. The average citizen here in Saskatoon is going about their ordinary business, right. isn't going to have any problems with crime. Yeah, I'm often talking to my friends about that. They're always asking, you know, what's it like? Because they see these statistics and like, the stabbings and the shootings that we've been having now. And it's like, it's not going to affect you. Yeah. Like at all. Yeah. And, you know, I just, because uh, I'm staying at, I'm living in Regina now, so we came up uh, last night and I'm staying at a hotel. And when I left this morning, I'm still kind of like a, a tourist person for Saskatoon. Right. And I met this couple <laughs> from Niagara. So, you know, I was telling them how to get downtown and you can walk by the river there. It's completely safe. It's a nice, safe city. I mean, that's, I firmly believe that it's a very safe city. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we, th when we talk about, um, you mentioned uh, drugs a little bit there as being a, a contributing factor. Um, obviously, at the, the Say No podcast were about community education as far as drugs go. I've heard you say at, um, well, I think it was a press conference or a media release or something where you talked about methamphetamine and property crime and a relationship there. Could you kind of highlight that or talk about that? For yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about uh, methamphetamine and the, and the correlation to crime. And, uh, you know, I've talked to other chiefs in Calgary and Edmonton and uh, Vancouver, and they're seeing the same thing, Regina. They're seeing the same thing in methamphetamine. You know, you get somebody that's uh, addicted to meth. That's the only thing they want is the next hit for meth, and they'll do anything right. to get it. And that's what's leading to a lot of the property crime and a lot of the stolen vehicles that we're seeing. And uh, that's escalated our crime rates right across uh, Western Canada. I don't think it's impacting so much in, in Eastern Canada for the methamphetamine yet. I don't okay. know why. 
but it certainly will because it's as we all know that have been you know looking at drugs over the last decades it's it's come up through the west uh, of uh, bc uh, right. west of the united states and up into canada and uh, and it's the western provinces that are feeling it the most and unfortunately uh it's a highly addictive drug yeah, you know use it two or three times you're addicted right and uh i'm sure you some of the listeners have seen uh, somebody pre-methamphetamine and you look at a picture of them three or four months after they've been on meth it's like a completely different person yeah, like you know is. they're gaunt they're they've lost weight their teeth are going it's it's uh, just a terrible drug yeah we had uh keith bowering on the show and he's a member of our organization too he was a former methamphetamine traf- trafficker and user and so he talked uh in depth about what it's like and one of the things that i found interesting was that the meth trade the the substance itself now is the same so so kind of gone are the days where like he said you used to talk you know you used to get you know if it was meth from the bikers for example or meth from you know he had some Aryan nation groups they would get methamphetamine from or the asians or you know different different little organized crime sect uh, factors and now he said all the product is the same and so it's obviously all coming in in one massive uh, shipment and i mean i can only imagine it would be something like fentanyl coming in from the west coast on ships and coming into our country i think methamphetamines probably hit that now too yeah yeah and i know uh you know of course people are concerned about fentanyl and and the drugs that are involved with that and i know we had a recent take takedown in saskatoon about oh 18 months ago and working with the rcmp we traced it back to the meth lab and uh like the guy had a pill press there that we could put out like thousands of pills in an hour right like it really is a very lucrative business and that's the the fentanyl chance yeah fentanyl lab yeah yeah so he was actually pressing his own pills. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think the bulk powder is so cheap and you need such a small amount to, to be able to press it. Yeah. So and, you know, we're looking at what the precursors are and trying to alleviate, you know, the flow of that so you can make the meth. But it still is, there's a lot of money in it. Right. And if there's money to be made, and unfortunately there's people out there that want it, there's a, there's a big market for it. And uh, as I said, it's so highly addictive that, uh, you know, I've known people that uh, are 35, uh, 38, 39 years old, uh, that started doing meth. They had good jobs. They and all, they, they've lost everything. Oh. And even when we go to our health district here now, the number one drug that's causing addiction uh, uh, admissions is methamphetamine here in Saskatoon. Is that right? And S- it's the age group is over thirty. Really? It's not kids. It's not kids seventeen or eighteen. Hmm. It's uh, it's older people that are are getting addicted to meth as well. Hmm. Interesting. So. Um, one of the bits of research that I've that I've delved into over the years is is Gabor Mate stuff from from Vancouver, and uh, Dr. Mate, uh, I have a quote in our presentation. It says that um, people people who have gone through trauma, experienced trauma and, um, or abuse, kind of like a single uh, kind of a single traumatic event, they tend to crave opiates. And then people who have kind of had more of a long-term neglect or childhood um, neglect or something that kind of went on for a longer period of time, they sort of, and also mental health like ADHD and stuff, they tend to um, lean towards methamphetamine use. And I know that I've noticed that in my career. Is that something you've ever paid attention to or noticed that at all? Yeah, you know, I really couldn't, I couldn't uh, follow that one back down to its roots at all. I'd, you know, I'd be w- walking in uncharted territory even to right. answer that one. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Um, so methamphetamine and property crime. So would that be fair to say that if um, if methamphetamine affects the property crime, then if we could somehow, because I mean it's not just the, the meth use that's that's affecting property crime; it's the ability for them to actually pay, like 
find the drugs or, or make money so that they could pay for their addiction. That's right. That's what would be driving that, the That's what the driver is, and they're trying to get their money for that. Right. And uh, so, you know, they're breaking into cars, they're breaking into garages, you know, getting anything they can out of vehicles, you know, loose change, uh, uh, something they can sell very quickly to get a few dollars. Right. Uh, even some robberies on the street. And uh, one of the strange phenomena, too, is stolen vehicles. Like, we've had so many people that uh, we've had high-speed pursuits with that have been high on meth. Yeah. Uh, they've stolen the vehicle. They're using it for a crime, uh, right. maybe an armed robbery or something along that line. And when you've been up for three or four days on a meth high, you're not thinking straight. Uh, when our officers encounter those people, uh, uh, there are lots of times of violence. And when an officer's trying to arrest somebody that's violent, high on meth, they don't feel the pain that anybody else would. You know, if I twisted your arm right now, Matt, yeah. well, I'm not a very big guy, but you <laughs> might feel it. Yeah. Uh, but when somebody's high on meth and you're an officer and you're trying to, you know, use some kind of maneuver to arrest somebody, twisting an arm probably is not going to have much effect. So, right. therefore, ergo, the violence starts to escalate as well, too, between the police and these people. Right. Yeah. So what So what can the police do? Or what? what um, is there any discussions kind of at, a, you know, at your level or where you previously were? kind of at those tables like what what sort of discussions are we having to sort of um i guess alleviate some of the pressure of, of the crime statistics with um, something to do with drugs or drug enforcement or anything like that yeah well you know we do have a uh, within the canadian association of chiefs of police we do have a drug abuse committee uh and the very high uh, senior executives from right across canada sit on that committee and, you know, we're trying to work on things to, uh, you know, number one, educate people on drugs. Uh, number two, do some interventions if we can. And uh, number three, I think just to raise awareness on what drugs can do for people. And I think, and I know you've worked on this, Matt, and kudos to you, and that's why I was so happy with the program that you brought here. I mean, you're getting the families and the parents involved as well, too, because right. uh, like when I grew up, my parents knew nothing about drugs. Uh, uh, we did on the street, kids growing up. But our parents knew really nothing. And I would dare say a lot of the parents right now are the same way because if you've got a parent that's in their 40s, the drugs now are different right. than they would have encountered when they were in high school or heard about them because right. meth probably wasn't even around very much in those days. Right. Of course, now with the legalization of marijuana, now we have to kind of work our way through that one and how that's going to affect our youth as well. Right. So as a parent then, um, obviously getting getting information is is very important. Um, well, I can remember you uh, you hosted one in our gymnasium there at uh, at the Saskatoon Police Service, and it was a sold out evening. Yeah, the parents were they were just uh, you know uh, gobbling everything up, any information that you could give them because they really were unprepared to even de- talk to their their children about this. Right. Yeah. And school school isn't the only place where children learn. I mean, I think home, school, their friends. You put all those pieces together is how uh, somebody's going to make up their mind on something at that age. Right. One of my favorite. Um, drug awareness uh commercials as I've, i saw on youtube recently was uh this dad and he's wraps himself up in a blanket and is on his and he's on the floor in his uh daughter's room and she's a teenager kind of giving him attitude looking at him like he's crazy and he goes uh he goes what am i what am i and he's wrapped up in her blanket and she's like i don't know a burrito and he's like no i'm a joint and then <laughs> the, the slogan was there's no wrong way to te- talk to your kids about drugs and i think that, that's cool yeah i think that was uh a really good point because um i mean knowledge and education and the f- i mean the first time the first time a child encounters methamphetamine or the thought process of them um may- having to make a decision about methamphetamine shouldn't be when it's sitting there right in front of them that's there's right just this should be a brain pathway that's been created early on there's been dialogue they've thought about it thought about their family values and then what we can do yeah and you know what uh, the way that parent did that is, is such a good way to do it and 
I can't remember the name of the book I read. It might have been Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. I can't remember what it was, but it was, uh, it was a, a kind of a story about when you're growing up and uh, your dad is telling you stuff. It's not the real smart things that your dad told you about. <laughs> right. It's the way your dad walked that was funny one day. That's what you're going to remember. That's the things, you know, the real psychological things that your dad's talking. A lot of that stuff's going to go over your head or you're not going to remember that. So for him to do something like that, his kids will remember that. It's, right. It's, it's funny how what we retained right. uh, as children growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's a good initiative. It's creative. Um, get your kid talking about it, even if they're scowling at you. I mean... At least, at least the conversations out there. So, in that girl in the video, the first time she sees a joint isn't going to be the first time she thought about a joint. That's right. right? It was when her dad was goofing around. And you know, we we hold these things uh, in these meetings in Saskatoon, and it's uh, high school students uh, come in. We bring in about a hundred high school students, and this is all run through Crime Stoppers. Mm-hmm. We bring in about a hundred high school students, and they spend the morning talking about what issues are facing them. And then uh, when I was the chief, myself would come, and there'd be a couple of superintendents from the school boards would come. And the youth, the high school students, would tell us what their issues are and what their solutions are uh, instead of them being told what, right. what the solution should be. And while I've got to tell you how, how smart they are and how in touch with the reality they are and how a lot of them are really anti-drug, uh, they want something done with the, with the drugs that are in the schools. Uh, I mean, we think sometimes that the, the past uh, conservative government was very hard on crime. Mm-hmm. But you listen to the way some of these students are talking. I mean, they really want something done to get the drugs out of the schools right. so that they're safe in school and the gang activity and that stuff. And they're really asking for, you know, for, uh, for the leaders right now to do something about that. And they're very concerned about it. Mm-hmm. And I dare say you could go to any high school and you're going to get the same uh, in any city. Right. You're probably going to get the same stories that we're getting from the high school students here. Right. Well, we're seeing on... Uh on a national level, um, it's, I mean, it's survey based. So you have to, you know, take that as, as, you know, kind of with a grain of salt to an extent because you don't know if the people are going to be honest with the survey or not, but still, it's still a decent data that stats Canada has collected. And we're actually seeing that youth are making much healthier decisions today than they did yesterday, even though there's more dangerous drugs available to them, they're making a lot healthier decisions, more educated decisions. I imagine the internet has probably helped with, you know, communication and, you know, looking up credible resources rather than just trusting what the person's telling you. So, um, so I find that interesting because, you know, it's it's like you say that we often think oh, all the youth are running around trying to get stoned all the time, but in actual case, the vast majority of them are trying to do something positive and. Oh, absolutely! And I think back, uh, you know, when I was a young man, and uh, you know, just take drinking and driving for instance. I mean, drinking and driving, nobody even thought anything of it. You'd have a few beers and go and drive. Right. Whereas now the youth here are very, very cognizant of uh, of not driving uh, when they've been drinking and stuff. It's a whole different, I think, thought process uh, f- for the youth right now. And a lot of them, you know, generally are trying to get ahead, trying right. to make a future for themselves. And, and kudos to them. Very good, good heads on their shoulders. You'd mentioned uh, uh, the the community initiatives there with um, you know getting together once a year and working with the schools and other health professionals. How important is that community partnership for modern-day policing? Oh, it's imperative. Uh, you know, you have to have trust in the community to be successful as a police service. To get trust, you have to work within the community. And uh, I think uh, the more that we can outreach uh, to different groups, different uh, segments within our society, and open up the dialogue, I think it's a very common thing. And, you know, uh, you build trust when you work with people and you start to know somebody. Right. And the best way I can explain that is, uh, 
yeah, you know, in my life, uh, you could go away for a course, uh, say, to the, uh, the the Canadian Police College in Ottawa, and, and you meet a few people from other police departments. And, you, you know, you've met them. You don't really know them. You've met with them. You've sat in some classes with them and, you know, you know, sh- you know shared some stories. But now you know that person. So somebody would come to you the next day and say, uh, you know, G. Clive, I'm working on a case. Uh, you know somebody in Vancouver, a police service that I could call. Oh, yeah, call, uh, you know, uh, Joe so-and-so. I, like, I met him. He's a really good guy. Right. Like, I don't really know him that well, but because I met him and, and talked with him, you start to build up that trust, and, and that's how I think we have to work as a police service. We need people that can feel comfortable talking to the police, right. uh, listening to what we have to say, understanding our our role in the criminal justice system, because we only have a role. Right. We're not the criminal justice system. Right. And and trust is the the really the really big factor here, and uh, I've seen that uh, right through my career, and how you work with people, and how you uh, uh, move around in a community, and build that trust is then you start to get a real healthy police service. Right, and so are, are you starting to see? I know it seems traditionally it's kind of been like the police service is sort of the helm of the city sort of thing, where it come where it kind of a lot of I mean we can't say no to respond to a call. I mean someone calls, we're going. Um, are you starting to see because of those relationships, is that where now we're able to outsource or, or at least become more efficient and, you know, managing let's, for an example would be like mental health. And we have a pack team here of a social worker and, and police officer partnership together. Is that kind of an example of, um, those relationships with other community partners? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we were looking at, uh, uh, you know, safe injection sites here in Saskatoon. So, you know, we sat on the committee to look at that so we have a voice. Uh, we can understand how people are, are planning on maybe bringing one to Saskatoon. They can hear what our concerns are. They can, we can understand each other. And, and rather than being polarized on, on an issue, uh, I right. think it's much healthier for everybody to kind of work together on it. Right. And, and information sharing is probably a key Absolutely. component of that. Absolutely. So how do we get around um, or how have police services got around sort of that and what traditionally sharing information outside of the police services like well like that's that's our information or that's our intelligence that we've gathered um how do we get around now opening up and kind of sharing more with those community partners okay well there's always a, a little bit of risk with that because when you're sharing information naturally uh, you're, you're concerned with what's going to get out and what isn't going to get out and how people understand what you're saying because sometimes, uh, you know, I can be talking to you, but you're hearing something different than I'm trying to, my meaning is. Right. So we've got to be very careful when we're, when we're talking with folks. But I think we're probably the last big institution left that's still got some, some weight behind it. And I don't mean power that way, but I mean, you know, we're funded fairly well. We have quite mm-hmm. a bit of resources. Uh, if we want to start an initiative, we have the resources that we can get it going. We can bring partners on. The only problem is we end up driving the bus a lot of the times right. because we can get these initiatives going. Right. So the idea is to, to work with the different partners, get the bus going, but we're just a, a person on the bus rather than the people driving it. And, you know, we see that in the, with the hub process that's uh, started in Prince Albert. We have it here now in, in Saskatoon and Regina. It's going right through uh, throughout Canada where uh, uh, mental health workers sits at the table, uh, social services, uh, uh, police, uh, local bylaw. Uh, education, and uh, they conference on uh, certain high-risk individuals, youth mainly, right. uh, that are having problems, and uh, we can try to do some interventions with that youth, but it takes all those groups, all those pieces to the puzzle to to make a difference. Right. And still, there's a lot of people that are very apathetic to all this, uh, Matt, and I recall when I was a chief, 
you know, I'd be out and I did a lot of public speaking and I'd be going out and talking about, you know, the issues that we're facing in society with, you know, poverty and poor housing and some of those issues. And a lot of people don't want to hear that from a right. police chief. You know, they start to look at the ceiling or they look at the wall. Uh, they're not interested in somebody else's problems. They've got their own problems. Okay. And uh, I think that's one of the big issues that we have is the public apathy to really get some push behind what has to get done. Right. So if there is an initiative that the, obviously it has to be voiced from the public and you need that support in order to actually get the ball rolling. Yeah, people ask me lots of times, well, well Chief, what can we do? What can we do to help? Well, talk to your MLA, talk to your MPs. Like, we've got to get the government to understand that there's there's infrastructure. The, the government spends a lot of money on infrastructure to create jobs, to, uh, you know, we, we do need new infrastructure, sewers and roads. There's no right. doubt about that. But I think we need more money spent on social infrastructure. Right. Uh, that's going to create jobs just as much as construction workers for for the physical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And if you're creating jobs for mental health people, things along that line, you're still creating jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're going to do a lot more good. I think for every dollar you spend, you know, you're going to reap a lot of benefits uh, back from that. So, you know, one of the biggest things I, I say is that we can do as a society is we've got to urge our politicians to, to start to put some money into that social infrastructure because that's what's going to make the difference into the future here. Right, and then that will reduce the cost of cr- the criminal justice system mostly or at least relieve some burden if we if we start uploading some resources on the front end. Well, for sure, and I mean, you've heard lots of police chiefs, not just me, saying that, I mean, we can't arrest our way out of these situations. Uh, I mean, you can lock somebody up for uh, 10 years, uh, but if there's no transition back into where they're going and they've had no real good assistance while they've been into jail, you know, to uh, to learn a trade or be prepared when they get back out, they're right. going to go right back to where they started again with the people they're hanging around with, and you're going to replicate what you started with in the future. It's just a big, vicious circle. Yeah, it is a big cycle. Um, are you starting to see that, that police are look, starting to look at or police organizations are starting to look at those issues with a little bit of a different lens than maybe when you started policing 30-some years ago? Oh, for sure. When I started policing, I mean, uh, it was still the old-style policing. I mean, I started policing in 1975. It was still lots of guys started in the 40s and 50s. And uh, now people that were hiring, they're almost all university-educated. They've taken uh, criminology classes, sociology classes, psychology classes. I mean, our police officers of today, they know somebody isn't born with a knife in their hand uh, waiting to do a crime. They know those unfortunate individuals are a product of their environment. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to work on. So what role can the police play in, in, I suppose, managing that environment? I think we can be empathetic and uh, not look heavy-handed. And I think the way we treat people uh, will go a long way. And i just give you a, a story of my own life. When I grew up, I hated the police. There was no way I'd ever thought I was going to be a police officer. Oh, wow. You know, I used to give the cops the finger. And, uh, you know, man, I was grew up in the late 60s, and that's just <laughs> the way it was. And... Uh, one day, my house was broken into, and I was about 19. I was living on my own, and, and all my bottles and stuff were taken. I guess somebody just wanted some money from the bottles. But I went down to the Regina Police Headquarters. I was living in Regina at the time. And this great big burly uh, police officer who I got to know after I joined the Regina Police Service years later. But, I mean, I came into the front desk. Uh, he was friendly. He really seemed to care that my place was broken into, and, mm-hmm. and he tried to, do, tried to help me. And I left there thinking, gosh, you know, the police aren't, so bad after all. I guess they really do have a bit of compassion and they really do care about us. And that really changed my whole outlook on, on policing and, and what the police can do in a community. I think that's something we try to ingrain on our officers uh, right across Canada is to, you know, be empathetic to, to people. Uh, when I was the chief, people weren't phoning me to say thanks for solving my crime. You got right. the odd thing like right. that. But people were phoning to say, 
gee, thanks, your officer took my daughter home from an accident. Uh, she got home safely. Or thank you very much, uh, my son was uh, in a psychotic episode, and the police arrived, and they treated him with dignity, and we got him taken. We got that's where the that's where the the uh, the public appreciates a police service. Right. So where do you think the I mean, I hear those stories too every once in a while, but the narrative in the media sure seems to be different. There's still there's still definitely kind of an anti-police sediment or any little thing that that occurs from a police service that, you know, there seems to be a big public outcry. If these little interactions are so important and make the difference in, you know, like it did for you, then why are we seeing still, do you, do you think, um, sort of the anti-establishment attack on the police any chance we get through the media? Well, you know, we're, we're very front and center. So, you know, and we've got power. People think we have power because we do. You know, we right. carry guns. We can we can arrest people, detain people. No one else can do that. So we're held to a higher standard. So naturally, uh, you know, when something goes wrong with the police service, we're going to get, you know, looked at a little bit harder than anybody else. But I would dare say I think sometimes we magnify that ourselves as police because if you look at the news very carefully and uh, it doesn't matter if you're a bus driver in Toronto and you're texting, somebody's going to get a picture of that and they're going to blow it up on the news and right. it's going to make the news. Right. So pretty well anywhere you are in government now, you know, you're you're prone to be looked at a little bit closer than than the average person. And I think that's something that we just have to accept. But I will say one thing. And you know, I, I witnessed this in Saskatoon as things turned around in Saskatoon. You know, we had poor relations here, you know, several years ago. Yeah. And as things turned around, you know, we were going from about 145 positive stories in our local paper a year to about 570 positive stories a year. Oh, wow. And uh, people in general don't remember good stories per, per se. Right. They remember a bad story because they're, they're more infrequent and, and it draws your attention to it. But as people start to hear good stories, they might not remember exactly why they're feeling good about a police agency or a government agency. But if they're hearing enough good stories, they start to get a feeling about an agency. And if they start to get that positive feeling, that's where you really open the doors for to work with the public I because see. they trust what you're doing. And they'll give you the benefit of a doubt if something goes wrong because uh, I've always said and our, our senior staff always said, you know, I think people expect there's going to have something goes wrong lots. People right. expect that. It's how you handle it right. is the measure of, a, of, a, of any organization. Right. Yeah, I know you've always been front and center um, even when, you know, something – kind of negative occurs or whatever you've always kind of i respected it anyways i know most of the people that i talk to in our organization always respect the fact that it was just like this is what we did this is why we did it do you guys have any questions and then it seems like once you put it out there there's less chance of the conspiracies kind of behind the behind the newspapers or on the social media that's right comment feed or whatever we worked very hard uh, and i know saskatoon still is and i know regina does you know in our province here in prince albert work very hard with the media because once again, it's like with the community. If the media trusts what you're telling them, they don't feel they have to go out and make the story and try to put the story together because they're going to get most of the story. Right. And they understand we can't give a lot of information out on a criminal charge you know, before the court case, but we can still give out enough so the public should be satisfied of what the circumstances are so they can understand what those circumstances are. And I think that alleviates a lot of the issues that uh, you know, some police services have certainly been uh, uh, you know, faulted for for not giving out enough information. You know, right. you know, if we did something wrong here in Saskatoon, and uh, you know, one of our officers unfortunately did something that probably he or she shouldn't have done, the best thing to do is go and say, "Okay, this is what's happened." Uh, you know, we're, we're owning up to that. Uh, uh, we're going to take whatever action it needs to for, with that officer, but we're also going to change some policies. You know, I think people can understand that. Okay, this is what happened. This is what we're going to do about it. This is this is you know, we're, we're we're very open with this. We're not trying to hide it. Right. 
Yeah, that's, uh, I know the um, education being a key part of what we do as a SANO organization, but also as police too, now in community education, I think traditionally, I think that those doors have been closed. And then in the last probably decade, or at least in my career, in 13 years, I've even seen a bit of a change where it's, you know, we have social media people working for the police service. So they're putting out information quickly in a timely manner. You know, there's, yeah, there's initiatives. We're sharing, we're sharing stories that came from the street. And I know some of the, some of the country's most popular Twitter feeds are, you know, a cop that's allowed to have a, allowed to have a phone while he's riding around and he's sending out funny or unique um, stories on that feed and, you know, Canadians are tuning in. So it's nice to see that we've kind of started to open up that veil of secrecy that maybe we once had as police yeah i think we we're always you know taught to kind of keep things close to our chest you know we have we swear to uh you know s- to not give out any information uh, you know s- things along that line so people's information is protected but i think we still have to let the public know what we're up to as a police service right um well we are a drug um organization so i got to ask you some questions regarding some drug policy um, do you think that there's going to be any changes um, on a national scale? You've got the legalization of marijuana um, coming into effect. Um, it seems like the police, uh, a lot of the narrative that were coming out of police services were things that seemed rather uninformed, like comments that I saw from uh, from some on Twitter and whatnot would be like uh, kind of kind of to the effect that now, our, our youth are more at risk with the legalization of, of uh, marijuana. And some fairly high-ranking officials of police services putting these comments out there. Where would that, where would that stuff come from? Like, where would their comments or opinions or whatever be generated from? Well, you know, I, I guess uh, everybody has a different opinion on, on different things, and, you know, police chiefs are no different than anyone else. Uh, right. I know when I was the president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, and we're, you know, the, the initial stages of the legalization were coming on, and uh, and uh, the position that we took as a CACP, and not every chief agreed with it, was, you know, that legalization is going to come. Mm-hmm. They've already announced that's going to be legal. Let's not look like a bunch of old boys that can't get with the program and fighting right. it. Let's work with the government. Let's work with people to try and make sure that it is a safe initiative when it comes on. Right. So some chiefs have come along with that. Some haven't. Some people have, you know, their own their own biases. Uh, but I think, by and large, in my opinion, I mean, uh, it's not like we're st- we're at ground zero starting with right. marijuana. And it's going to all of a sudden be legalized. Right. We're probably at seventy percent there anyway. Right. So um, it's not like it's going to be a big flood here right away. I mean, there were some issues and still is about, you know, impaired driving and things along that line. But those will all get straightened out. Yeah. And uh, I, I would dare say this is probably no different than it was when Prohibition stopped uh, back in the 20s and li- liquor was legalized again. And some people thought it would do harm and some people didn't. And we just have to work through it as a society. Right. So when it comes to impaired driving, I know um, a lot of the police now are having to prepare themselves for, um, like, how to deal with an impaired driver, drug-impaired driver. Um, do you know of any initiatives or what, what that's looking like or what it's going to look like for the tools or resources that police are going to have to actually, while that person's behind the wheel, assess their level of sobriety from marijuana? Yeah. Well, of course, as you well know, we don't really have a, a foolproof method yet like you can with alcohol to measure uh, 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 impairment. Right. But, you know, we'll have our drug recognition experts, which is a long process to get done. And we'll have people trained that they can do uh, roadside checks. It looks like the government is giving a little more authority to the police to do more random checks for, for roadside. 
and I would hope the public accepts that as a, as a positive thing. Right. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a grab of power by the police to you know, stop people or pick on people, but I think we want to make sure our roads are safe. I mean, more people probably still die in motor vehicle accidents than they do by criminal acts. Right. Uh, so we want to make sure that our, our streets are safe. And I still think, you know, there is a concern about the black market. I mean, uh, I jokingly say that, uh, you know, the cartels that are moving marijuana up uh, into our country, uh, uh, they're not going to start making Barbie dolls uh, now because it's going to legalize <laughs> right. in Canada, right? They're still right. going to want to share their market. That's right. how they live. So uh, we have to be very price conscious on where the price is going to be and how accessible it is uh, for people to get. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I mean, it's just there's, it's hard because there's no real measurement tool of an illicit market, so it's hard to make these assessments. But, you know, our part of our math... You, like you, you watch on mass prices drop in, an, in a drug economy. So like methamphetamine now, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but it's like five or ten bucks a point. Whereas back in when I was a drug investigator, it was like twenty or thirty bucks a point. So okay. it's such a dramatic price decrease. And part of me is under the impression that maybe that's occurring because marijuana is, like you said, about seventy percent probably pretty much legal anyways, or get getting there. Um, so as the organized crime members stop selling marijuana, they then go to another illicit substance to make money off of, hence flooding the market, hence dropping the price. Yeah. So it would be interesting to see once it is fully legalized if all of a sudden there is another spike from a different drug that now they've pushed into or or what. But Yeah, like you never know where this will, where this will end up. Uh, I guess time will tell. But I think we don't have to, it's not chicken little here, the sky's not falling, I don't think. Uh, right. We'll work our way through this. And, uh, and uh, you know, I've always cautioned uh, any of our police colleagues to be very careful when you're talking about this because some people will start to talk about it being a gateway drug to other things or they're going to start right. to talk about the medical implications. Well, we're police officers. We shouldn't be talking about the medical implications. Medical people yeah. should be doing that, right? That's right. that's their. We should be concerned with things like traffic or the the black market or things that we're responsible for as police, and that should be what our concerns are, and and leave the other experts to their expertise. Right. So, are there speaking of expertise? So, are at at these uh, national meetings that you'd have with other chiefs of police, and you're developing uh, some policies? Is there any like research or um, partner like partnership? agencies or committees that are formed to then go and sort of delve into an issue and then are we going to launch this nationwide or like how does that how do how do big picture police um policies get developed well we would partner with uh, like you know we did a lot of initiatives in in recent years on uh, ptsd so we would work with the mental health commission of canada uh, they would help with the research that has to get done so that uh, we can quantify what's what's happening. We would also uh, work with uh, different groups to uh, uh, encourage the government for funding. Uh, for instance, uh, well, once again, on the PTSD, I think the University of Saskatchewan's got about uh, quite a few million dollars to do a lot of research into uh, police officers and frontline responders and what happens with PTSD. The same thing, I think, has to happen kind of along the line with drugs as well, too. Okay. So do you think you'd... F- um like, would we fly in, you know, officers from other countries where they've tried different initiatives to explain what's happened in their economy? You know, for example, um, Portugal, it came from the police. It was, was one of the initiatives to decriminalize um, simple possession, but they had a prescription alternative to provide. Obviously, you can't have one side without the other. Yes. Um, 
are these sort of discussions that are that are occurring in our country? If, if you're, are you aware of any of that? Yes, they are, uh, because we're associated also with the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and uh, every year there's a huge conference. Uh, a lot of these uh, issues are discussed. Uh, you get first-hand knowledge of what's happening in, uh, you know, uh, things that may be happening in Amsterdam with the drug trade and how they right. deal with things in Amsterdam, Iceland, different parts of the world, just to see how uh, our people are dealing with this and try to come up with some, some, uh, some different alternatives here. I mean, we have to be careful because every every country has their culture, their different nuances. Right. Not everything's going to work that works somewhere else. I mean, if you go to Singapore, I mean, it's completely different <laughs> how they handle drug offenses right. there compared to here, right? <laughs> so you have to take everything with kind of a grain of salt and try to, to, you know, pick out the best practices that you can. And then you've got to get the public on your side on some of this because, uh, you know, the public has to be feel comfortable with the way the police may or may not uh, act or even say about uh, drugs and how we're going to uh, enforce the laws. Right. So in Vancouver, um, obviously they made some policies there where police officers weren't shutting down any of the illegal pot shops that set up. So that would have been an internal policy that they made because it made sense there. Um, there's also um, heroin replacement therapy programs that are going on countrywide. So all of a sudden, you know, an individual is able to have a prescription for um, basically a street-grade heroin, but a prescription version of it. Um, so a police officer could no longer arrest that person for their substance, or they shouldn't yes. anyway. Yes. Um, do these are these initiatives sort of do they occur on sort of a smaller local level, or do these kind of funnel down from these national discussions? Usually, something like that will start within a community, and then we'll all watch to see what happens in that community, and then we'll they're the kind of like the pioneers, right? And then we'll watch and see kind of how that goes, and then we'll start to discuss it and see whether or not it should come to our community or not, and then get the people, uh, you know, uh, people from city council or mental health officials or uh, uh, education involved so we can we can discuss this openly. I mean, we all watched, you know, the uh, the uh, supervised injection sites that happened in Vancouver, and, you know, right. we're seeing those open up right across Canada now. The federal government's uh, really loosened the, uh, the, uh, the prerequisites to open one now. Uh, they seem very, very uh, comfortable with, the only problem is, I guess, is where are you going to put it? And well, yeah. that seems to be the public, where the public, exactly. I think a lot of people in the public can understand that. Okay, maybe that's a good idea, but I don't want it in my neighborhood. Right. So you run into those issues. Uh, you run into the same issues with uh, halfway houses for people getting out of the penitentiary. Right. People would agree you probably should have somebody transition back into what might be helpful, but I don't want that transition house in my neighborhood. Right. Right. So and the other thing with the safe ingestion sites, for example, is if they're still getting an illicit substance, it's not doing anything to help us as a police service reduce crime by any means because they're still having to That's right. go break into my garage to fund their habit to then That's go right. use at the safe injection site. That's right. So, I mean, there's the... And everybody, like I say, has their biases. I mean, some people say abstention is the best way to go, and some people say, no, a harm reduction is the best way to go. And, right. and uh, you know, <clears throat> research on it yet, I wouldn't say it was 100% either way. Right. There's lots of good research out there now. Uh, because uh, supervised injection sites have been around for probably 10 years or so in, in BC anyways. Right. So we'll have to see where that goes as well too. But I think we just can't take a, a blind eye and just enforce and force and force. We've got to work with different alternatives and see what we can do. Right. Great. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Chief Wayhill. Um, I don't know if you remember, but we got sworn in together. I was in, when you got sworn in. That was I was the same class that got sworn in, class fifty three. Yes, yes, in <laughs> August. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, so. It's always it's been interesting because I was able to police um, 
I mean, my first year of policing was with you as a new chief, but I got to feel and work in a community that definitely had a different relationship with the with the police service as a whole than they do now. And uh, and you're the only change that occurred. So, I mean, I thank you um, for being my chief and for all the all the great initiatives that you've done for our community and for this country. Okay. Well, well, thanks, Matt. But you know, I have to say, and people, you know, I get uh, kind comments like that quite often. But uh, one person doesn't uh, do it alone, and I really mean this. I mean, we've had a good executive staff uh, at at our service. Uh, the rank and file worked very, very hard, and people make up their mind and uh, and uh, measure a police service by how they're being served. And it's the men and women, uh, sworn and civilian, that did it. Uh, I was lucky enough to be here when people wanted to change and do some different ideas, but it's the people that ran with those ideas that. Uh, that made a real successful turnaround here. So, but thank you for your comment. Yeah, no problem. We need some more innovative leaders. So hopefully, hopefully they keep emerging. I always end all my podcasts with one question: Is it is addiction a criminal justice issue, a healthcare issue, or something different altogether? I firmly believe it's it's a healthcare issue, and uh, you know we worked very hard here in Saskatoon to try and keep people uh, uh, that are addicted mainly to alcohol that we arrest uh, and putting them in a, j- a jail cell. And, that isn't a place to deal with somebody that's got an addiction problem or putting him in a jail cell. And right. You know, that's why we have got some stabilization beds here and some other things that happen so that people can, can go to a place more dignified and maybe get some help for their addiction after. But uh, a jail cell is not the, pers- not the place for a person with addictions. Cool. Great answer. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Say No KNOW.org podcast. Please head over to your social media pages and follow us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter handle is at SayNoOrg. Also, check out our website, www.saynoknow.org. And most importantly of all, please hit the subscribe button on wherever you're listening to this podcast. And tell all your friends and family, because we need all the support we can get. We're in this together. We're trying to make some positive changes in our community. And as far as we know, education, sharing stories is definitely the best way to do that. So catch you next time. Okay.